1: Good afternoon, I'm Margaret McCabe. I'm a nurse scientist here at Boston Children's Hospital and this afternoon I have the pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Ulrika Kreiksbergs. Dr. Kreigsbergs is a professor at the Sophia Hammett University, and associate professor at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. She's going to talk to us today about her work with severely ill children and their families. Ulrika, Would you like to tell us a little bit about why you chose nursing and becoming a nurse scientist and how you've gotten to that?
2: My interest in nursing began before I ever knew that I what a nurse nursing meant. I was sure when I was 14 that I wanted to become a nurse. After my um, graduation I started in pediatric oncology and um, there I met with these families who had their severely ill children and um, some families came back to us and wanted to spend so much time with us and others we didn't see again and I had this feeling that is it something that I or we as healthcare professionals has done to affect the feeling of the families and their well-being later on so I became interested in knowing how should we take care of the child and the family to um, try to reduce the psychological distress and the really, you know, difficult time that they meet when mm-hmm. they have lost a child to cancer. So that was my beginning. And I knew from, from start that that was something I wanted to do uh, to find out more about. And then um, I was in uh, the Stockholm School of Teaching, and I had to write several you know papers. Um, and uh, I started to look into how parents are doing following the loss of a child. And it wasn't much out there more than if you lose a child to stillbirth and so forth so i um i thought i had something to contribute with with uh, my um, area of interest in losing a child to cancer and
1: experience with your educational system was it
2: it was it was kind of um I mean, when you are a registered nurse, at that time, I had just two years of in nursing school. And then I had two years prior as being an assistant nurse. But as I had my points from the School of Teaching, I was eligible to go into the doctoral class and become a nurse. And today, with the new system in our country, after the bachelor degree in nursing you are allowed to go into a a doctoral program.
1: Well I think that's becoming more common in our country too.
2: And I think that's more of a, I mean we have a, we work with the European system so Mm -hmm. I think it's all over Europe that the same system. Same.
1: And so the beginning, your beginning work, working with families, you started out doing what kind of of research work?
2: The beginning started already at the teaching school when I looked at the literature like a literature review Mm -hmm. uh, and how parents do following the loss of a child and then I did another study where I looked at the literature that parents themselves have written not you know scientific work but their Mm -hmm. stories that have been published how they perceive this very horrible situation, and most parents wrote about a journey that went from A to Z and or from said to A, but it's included the same kind of themes. So I had my idea what is important to families in this situation. Mm-hmm. So after that, I interviewed parents who lost a child to cancer, and I opened up with only one question could you tell me what was important in the care of your child and his or her death and parents start talking for hours and i interviewed six parents and that led me to developing a questionnaire that we later tried with um, parents like a face to face validation mm-hmm. so all the questions in the questionnaire was they Origined from the interviews. So all the questions was kind of stated by the parents themselves in a similar situation. And then we tried to -to face-to-face validate those with other parents in that situation to see whether we had the right questions and the right response alternatives. And uh, then we continued with a pilot study to see the logistics for our study. Some were hesitant to to doing this study because we wanted not to interrupt the parents in their grieving too much, so we had a delay and we were planning to do the study four to nine years following the loss, Mm -hmm. so we shouldn't come right into their very hard grief work. And the IRB and others, were hesitant whether you could contact parents after such a long time, because they were thinking maybe they had forgotten about this situation. And uh, I had to uh, convince both uh, physicians and IRBs to go on with the study.
1: And did you find the parents?
2: The parents were, I mean, the contact that I have had with bereaved parents, they were all for the study. They wanted me to pursue the study as planned. And uh, they wanted nothing else than to be part of a study like this because they had so much to tell and to give to us and to give to other parents in a similar situation to, to learn from.
1: And that was quite a large study that yeah, had it some was important a nationwide findings.
2: a study where we um, sent out the questionnaire and the parents responded anonymously. And um, we introduced the study kind of smoothly with an introduction letter. And we called all the parents to see whether they would like to have the questionnaire or not. And uh, everyone that said yes got the questionnaire and none of those who said no were asked further questions. They, we accepted a no and we have a participation rate of 80%. And the internal response rate, I mean, they fill out each question in the questionnaire and it's about 365 single item questions in the questionnaire. So it's quite a heavy load on these parents, but they valued it very much.
1: And how many parents responded in total?
2: It's 450,
1: I believe. That's a large
2: sample. Yeah. And as I said we asked them to value or respond to how they perceived the study and I think that's a very valuable publication because we have so many parents who found the study valuable to them mm-hmm. and most of them were also affected positively by, by the study. And we have similar, similar results about perceiving the study in siblings who have lost a brother or sister two to nine years earlier.
1: And in terms of your findings related to grief and the grieving process, what were your findings?
2: Uh, For the parents, we found that um, 26% of the parents still four to nine years following the loss considered themselves to not have worked through their grief. And that is um, also uh, giving them an increased risk of psychological morbidity, such as anxiety and depression, being on sick leave, and so forth.
1: So outcomes that, as health professionals, we can intervene and in Yeah, help. we
2: can help the parents already when the child is ill in our care to prevent the long-term psychological morbidity. And enhance their grieving process by an open communication, by um, informing them about the importance of social support, and us giving them support throughout the journey of of their child's illness, and particularly in the last month of of their child's life. So we have an impact that we can help these parents in their long-term well-being.
1: So now we'd like to turn to the audience. Do you find in your nursing practice with children and families that you have the resource and you feel comfortable talking to parents about the importance of social support and how to help them find the resources that they need? And the siblings?
2: Uh, The same is true for the siblings. It's actually over 50% of the siblings who assess or respond that they have not worked through their grief and that's two to nine years following the loss. So that higher number could be due to that two-year period that differs between the parents and the siblings and also for the siblings the unresolved grief is um, seen, I mean those with unresolved grief have a greater risk of anxiety and low well-being and insomnia. And insomnia is true for both parents and siblings who are bereaved and particularly for fathers and brothers. So I think that could be something that we could look into further and maybe have in mind and um, see what we what could we do to improve their their grieving
1: and your work now so you my work started. now
2: is um, I work as a full professor and I've been funded I've been lucky enough to be funded for my research since my dissertation in two thousand four so that's I, very lucky yeah it's very lucky and um, I have a position as um, senior lecturer and a professor at the Sofia Hemet University and I'm involved in the graduate students a little bit but mainly I have my funding for my research so we are um, continue to look at the data from the bereaved parent study even though it's very very old and uh, the bereaved sibling study which is work by Alexandra Eiligord who defended her work in April 2012 and um, we are looking into more of the data from the siblings, like the freehand comments, where we ask the siblings to provide us with advice to other siblings in the similar situation. And we also ask the siblings to give advice to healthcare staff working with seriously ill children with cancer and their families. So we are now looking into that data and uh, hopefully we can provide some new knowledge for healthcare professionals, how to deal with the siblings who are often considered the invisible children in pediatric oncology.
1: Ulrika, one of the things that's really interesting to me is um, the concept of a national study. Um, The kind of study that you in Sweden um, may be more readily able to do than people in some other countries.
2: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because many of these questions, particularly on bereavement and so forth, have been considered not to be able to do in uh, larger scale studies because uh, I could have ended with my six interviews because that's the most common way of doing this type of research. But I was fortunate enough to be in a research group where we have been doing nationwide studies on uh, bereaved individuals earlier and um, I knew my supervisor-to-be so I knocked on his door and said could you help me to get answer to my questions and um, Gunnar Steinek who is a professor in epidemiology he then helped me and um, His methodology is just what I did with the interviews and the pre-phase with the face-to-face validation and so forth, the pilot study, and then going on to nationwide studies. And uh, being in Sweden, it's very, very fortunate because we have those um, registers that are available and uh, we can track people by their individual number and um, so it's really easy to get uh, touch with people with a particular you know the interest that you have and I believe the way we have um, developed our questionnaires and the way we contact individuals are we we try to um, not upset anyone and we pay respect to the individual. We write the letter uh, by hand first time and um, we address the letter to them in person. And in my study, I addressed a questionnaire to both the mother and the father in the study, uh, which I think made my study quite unique and the high response rate. Uh, the 80% response rate. But I mean, Sweden gives us this opportunity. So many, many studies are actually then nationwide, and we are a population of about nine million, which would correspond to the population in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I have done studies in Massachusetts as well. Um, And there we didn't have such a high response rate. So I know the difficulties here, in um, tracing people and get in touch with them and get them to respond. So luckily I was doing my research in Sweden. Yeah, and now we have moved from oncology to neurology actually. I was in touch with um, a neurologist and his um, child psychologist. They heard me talk about the parent study and they were interested in their population of parents of children diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy. And they asked whether it would be possible to do a similar study in that population. So we have just recently put together the the data from that study where we actually have an even higher response rate. I mean, they are so few, So I wouldn't talk about percentages, but um, we have 13 of 14 parents who have a child living with SMA that responded, which would be 93% if you would translate it to percentages. Very impressive. And we have, for those who have a child that died due to the disease, Mm -hmm. we have 48 parents of 56 responded to the questionnaire, and that would be... 86 percent, I believe. And that's also a 10-year follow-up. So those parents had their child born from 2000, the year 2000 to 2010, and then the child was later diagnosed with SMA. And we have a lot to um, look into in that data because they have provided us with open-ended Questions. I mean, they have written their stories about their journey with their little child. And um, also, we have um, data of, of more quantitative um, like measures.
1: Very interesting, yeah. that mix of the richness of the parent's story. Yes. In combination with...
2: Yeah, and that has worked very well. I mean, this is the... I mean, we have been doing even more than the parents' and the siblings' studies. We have a study also on um, survivors of cancer with uh, any urology cancer. And there it was also a very, very high response rate, like over 90 percent. And that was even a heavier questionnaire. So this kind of method developed by Gunnar Steinek and his research group really has put us on, on the map.
1: Mm-hmm. It's been very effective yeah. for the work that yeah. you've done.
2: And now we try to, I mean, it's, it's a good thing to figure out what does affect families. I mean, whether it's any avoidable or modifiable healthcare or family factors like communication and support. are what we have found, very, very important factors in nursing care. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then we must implement those results and maybe move from these epidemiology studies where we just map the problem and we should go to intervention studies. Um, And I know here researchers at Boston Children's have moved from... Just um, the cross-sectional studies to intervention studies in pediatric oncology. I've tried to take that step back to Sweden, but I haven't succeeded yet. But in my, it's in, it's my intention.
1: I have a feeling you'll succeed. Ah, oh, we'll, see, we'll <laughs> see. I think you will. Um, and. In terms of thinking about the findings from your studies and as we're talking about applying the information to, you know, everyday practice at the bedside, um, what are the things that you would say to um, nurses practicing in clinical settings that are working with patients? From the day? findings
2: that I have from the, the parent study, it's... Um, It's obvious that communication has a big role in how parents do long-term. So I would think already from giving the the information that the child's illness is incurable and whether that is expressed and uh, whether the family has a chance to walk the path of palliative care I think is very valuable to the family overliving their child. Um, and also the support, the support that they get from healthcare professionals and their friends, families, and so forth, the social support. And that could be um, important for nurses to have in mind when you have a father, for instance, being divorced and lose his child to cancer. Because we see that fathers tend to talk only to their spouse if they have one, and if they don't, I I would think that they are at very much a greater risk of psychological morbidity. But the open and honest um, communication And the information to families, I believe, is something that we as nurses can promote. And um, also to be aware of the child actually dying. Because the children often try to reveal their knowing of their imminent death to us. Mm -hmm. And we must be aware and um, respectful of the child's signals of showing us that and I felt as a nurse when I was a staff nurse that um, we all knew but no one actually put it on the table and uh, I have a publication that I'm very proud of where I actually asked these almost 500 parents whether they had talked to their child about death or not. And we found that none of the parents who talked regret they did. And it was among those 450 parents, a third who had talked and two thirds had not talked. And they were mainly happy with that. But we had a little group of parents, a third, among the two-thirds that had not talked so it was 69 parents who regret they did not talk and I wouldn't like to see that in any parent because it can't be done again so we must be aware of the child because it's when the child wants to talk that we should talk it's nothing that we should tell every child that you are actually dying it should be the child that show us that I am aware and prepared to talk about this, and then we should uh, try to get the parents and the child to meet in this very very difficult issue. And we must be professional and and look at those signals in in the ch- children
1: and support the parents and, and suppo- the children together. And support to get there. the
2: parents because. Uh, If it's not done, it's something that they live on with for forever. And also other researchers, very early work that I've seen, uh, they have stated that um, children who can express their thoughts and uh, going through this with others die more peacefully. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have no answers to that in my my study, Mm -hmm. but um, the, the, most of the conversations are initiated by the child him or herself because we looked at in addition to the old study where we actually asked whether you talked to your child about death or not and whether you regret it or not we have now for those parents who wrote a freehand comment, if you talked, could you please provide us with examples how you talked to your child about death? And that is a publication that will come up soon by Lijan Cell in Death Studies. And um, it's um, clear that most of these conversation, as I said, is initiated by the child. And often it's um, put in uh, relation to narratives or movies or others that children have seen died or know have died, or they want to put it in a practical manner. I want to give all my toys to my cousin or something like that. So it's a very hands-on publication on how parents talk to their child about death. And it's important, I believe, to have this kind of literature and have this kind of movies or narratives available on the wards so that families have access to them whenever they want to. So now we'd like to turn to
1: the audience and think a little bit about um, what Dr. Kreiksberg has um, found in her work. And I'm wondering if As pediatric nurses, you find resource, and if you have thought about strategies, to talk openly to patients and families, particularly thinking about supporting parents to speak openly to their children about death and dying. So I'd like to thank you Ulrika for your time and your insight um, telling us about your um, very interesting and important work with patients and families.
2: And I think the most important thing in the research I've done is that it's origins from the families themselves. And we are the ones to make sure it comes as an advantage to other parents and families in the same situation. That's what I hope that you all worldwide would help me with.
1: Thank you for joining us today.
2: This
0: recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.